Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of Headstrong. You're listening with me, Louis Strong. Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a number of people in the public eye to talk to them about the ins and outs of their lives and their careers. But notably, I want to talk to them about what the word headstrong means to them and where they might have felt headstrong and not headstrong in their life. On today's episode, I sat down with the British iconic actor Sarah Parrish. Now, I absolutely loved chatting to Sarah. She's got such a wonderful outlook on life and she is such a wonderful actor as well. I really, really love all her work and I know that she has pretty much not stopped working for a consistent number of years, so you'll know exactly who she is. Amongst other things, we also chatted about the wonderful charity that she set up with her husband, who also makes an appearance on the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on our Headstrong. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. Thank you for having me. No, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I know that we briefly touched on it, but where are you in the world at the moment? I am um, in a little village called Ovington, which is about 10 miles outside of Winchester. Um, it's right on the Itchin River, the River Itchin, which is a very famous chalk stream river down in Hampshire, full of lovely trout. Well, hopefully full of lovely trout. <laughs> um, it's a glorious day. Um, yeah, we, we really are in the middle of nowhere here. So it, I'm, I apologise if my if I freeze or my computer goes off, it's because we've literally got broadband from about 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like then the last 12 months have been quite luxurious and from a personal point of view, not luxurious, but an enjoyable sense being in the countryside and that's lovely. Um, but how have you found the last kind of 12 months? Well, it's been difficult. It's been weird. Um, I was, when the first lockdown happened, I was doing um, an episode of Inside Number Nine, which is, uh, you, you know, there are sort of a series of different little plays written by Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith from League of Gentlemen. And um, I think we got to day three on the shoot when we were suddenly locked down and we were all sort of quite quietly pleased I think because we you know the this the job that we were doing was all in this tiny little room and one of the actors Julian Glover was about 82 I think Julian and um, you know we were hearing all these bits of news you know oh you know old, old people are getting really ill and this that and the other and we were like oh my god I don't want to go anywhere near Julian and like, you know I don't want to breathe over here and it was still that stage where everyone just thought if they washed their hands a lot everyone everything would be fine so it- <laughs> We just spent the whole time washing our hands, thinking everything was fine. 
anyway, eventually we were on the Thursday. We were told to go home, and 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 we had a you know really that first lockdown for Jim and I was great in a way. I mean, it was horrible and heartbreaking and terrifying, but we were in a beautiful part of the country and you know we got to spend time with each other and time with our daughter which we never do usually um the weather was glorious um and apart from the hideous pandemic and the tragedy that was going on around us what what we were doing was actually quite pleasant um but it was just obviously horribly overshadowed by what was going on around us really um the second lockdown there were this lockdown rather hasn't been quite as far <laughs> just because it's you know we can't go outside and um it's been cold and it's just a difficult time of year isn't it but it has been it's been a really interesting time and we've tried to use it to our advantage and we've tried to do a lot of great things locally and hang out with each other and you know really it's it hasn't been all bad um I, obviously i wish it had never happened because i wish you know that all you know everything had been cool but that's not the way it was. So we made the most of it. We tried to make it, you know, as best as we could. Absolutely. Now, just picking up on, on something that you mentioned there, both you and your husband are working individuals and you, you share a lovely, lovely daughter. How do you, how do you, manage, um, how do you manage co-parenting, both working uh, and both still wanting to spend time with your lovely daughter? Um, how do you find that equal balance? It's difficult. It's really difficult um, because we do both work quite a lot. Um, we have to have um, an au pair and we've got a fantastic girl called Sarah at the moment. Um, we try and change um, the au pairs, you know, quite a lot. So Nell gets to meet lots of different people, have lots of different energies in the house. Uh, the au pair that we have at the moment, though, is particularly brilliant. So I hope she stays forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we have to have that because... You know, if we do get a job, usually we don't really get that much notice. So, you might, you know, you might get a phone call on Friday and you might be, I don't know, you might be in America on Monday. You just don't know. So we've always had an au pair, which has made our life so much easier and has worked really well for us. But we do try and work at different times. We've always tried to do that. I mean, both Jim and I are not really in the position where we can pick and we you know we're jobbing actors at the end of the day so we, we you know we can't sort of go oh, I'm not going to do that job and I just want to do that one if a job comes and you know it's going to pay well and it's good we we've got to do it really so but we do try to to have one of us at home all the time so if I'm away Jim will will try and be at home and vice versa but sometimes that just doesn't happen you know just at the end of last year giving us a job called Donald's Dodds, which is um, he's a regular in McDonald's and Dodds, which is shot down in Bristol, and then I was cast in it as well. I was cast as the lead in the in the last episode. So we're like, oh my god, we're in the same job. That's, I mean, that hasn't happened for sixteen years since we met. But you know, it was one of the, one of those rare occasions where you just go, God, thank God, we've got an au pair. You know, because we were just suddenly gone, both of us. That's quite fun. Finally, being back in the same job after a number of years. Did you it share was. some scenes? It was really funny. I mean, we didn't really have that much to do together, unfortunately. That I think they wrote a scene deliberately to put us in <laughs> together. Um, and we got to film it on our anniversary, which was a really nice coincidence. It was our 13-year anniversary. And we looked at the schedule and went, oh, my God, we're in a scene together on, on our 13-year anniversary. So that was, that was really nice. It was, it was nice to work together again. That's such a lovely coincidence. I, I was also, I was having a flick through your, your Instagram as well, as, as one does in, in the pandemic, with yeah. plenty of time on my hands. And, yeah. and I, saw, I saw that you were making the most of it, and you took a trip down the corridor to, uh, to spend a night in your daughter's bedroom with, with your husband. Yes. Well, she was so desperate for a sleepover. She go, I want to sleep over, I want to sleep over. And we kept trying to, it's very difficult to explain to an 11-year-old that it's mm. a new to go you know to go and see your mates so we just said okay listen we'll we'll do a sleepover and uh and we'll we'll have it in your room and she just loved it I and mean, we neither of us got any sleep really because we stuffed our face with sweets <laughs> <laughs> that's what she wanted then told some really spooky ghost stories and then we all just sort of stayed awake full of sugar like that <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant that's that's what it's all about so i suppose at least that there's the silver linings in the pandemic you know the family time that you have managed to experience you know having been away for long periods at the end of last year that's quite nice 
Yeah, it was. It was great. Yes, things like that have been really good fun. And we would never have done that before. You know, I think we probably would have always gone, oh, we haven't got time, we haven't got time. We actually have got time. That's the thing. You know, you, you always have got time. You just don't think of doing little things like that. And they, they mean the world to your kids, I think. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I can also see that you are wearing a wonderful T-shirt that says La on it. Yeah. Uh, and so you are a massive fan of It's a Sin, which... Oh. Go, go on. on. Yeah, um, oh. no, I, I'm, it was, I can't tell you, I loved it so much. I think I liked it a lot because those kids were, you know, that's when I moved to London that time. And the the way they were, it just reminded me of, of me. And I had, it was me and a group of friends. We lived in a little flat just off the Tottenham Court Road. And it was just like that. You know, we were all quite theatrical and, you know, fun. And we, we liked parties. We were out in heaven all the time. <laughs> I worked, I mean, literally, I just watched it and went, oh, my God, that was my life, you know. And it was right over the AIDS um, you know, t- time, it was, and it was a terrifying time in London. You know, nobody really knew what was going on. It was very frightening. And I remember, you know, two of my housemates um, were gay and I remember being very concerned, you know, about them. And it was, a, yeah, it was a really frightening time, but also a brilliant time to be a, a, a young sort of, you know, in your early 20s living in London. It was amazing. Gosh, that's, that's, that's so strange that you... you kind of were living in it firsthand it must have been kind of a strange experience to kind of relive it and rewatch it almost I suppose it was it was it was really sort of um yeah it was it made me incredibly nostalgic just all mm. the music the way they looked you know the way they danced <laughs> everything I just went oh my god it really brought it just brought back so many memories of um of of when I first moved to London so I first probably moved up to London when I in 1980 six so and i think that was when it was wasn't it yeah it was 1986 so yeah yeah good times but but scary times you know and and really frightening and it was incredibly upsetting you know to see it you know i didn't i didn't live it firsthand you know but i was there but i didn't live it firsthand i wasn't immersed in it like Mm. that i didn't know anyone oh actually well i did actually but i did know some people that died but you know, just watching it like that, you know, the, the meat of it and how awful it was and how awful people were treated, you know, and I, it really, it broke my heart, really. And I just thought those kids, I thought, well, they're not some of them aren't kids, but the actors in it were so brilliant, um, just so, so brilliant. Well, as I, as I briefly mentioned to you, I had Nathaniel, who played Ash, on last week. And so he sends his warmest wishes to you. And I send them back, hey. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm curious to ask you uh, more, more about uh, TV in general. What makes TV such a driving force for positive change and, and the opportunity to educate? Well, I think, you know, it's such an important medium, isn't it? I mean, you know, it, it used to be the theatre back in the day, everybody used to go to theatre. Well, people don't really go to theatre that much anymore because it's really expensive and it's quite elite. Um, TV is really, we all have a TV. Everybody watches the TV. So we have a really huge responsibility for what we put on it, I think. Um, and at the moment, we are, we're in two camps. I think we're, we're in a brilliant place and we're in a, we're in a not so brilliant place. <laughs> so, you know, some of the TV that we're bringing out now really is, is the best television that we've ever produced. You know, stuff that is very hard hitting, very political, brilliantly acted with superb actors. You know, we're getting film actors now that want to do TV because the scripts are so brilliant and we never used to have that. On the other end of the scale, we um, are still, you know, we're still feeding the public a lot of stuff that maybe isn't stretching us as human beings. You know, there's still a lot of... um, you know, big brothery kind of things and, and stuff that just, I don't know whether that is, is, is really testing us as a nation, really, and as human beings. I, I wonder how long we can keep that fad going um, because I don't, think it, it, I don't think it educates us and I don't think it stretches us as people, really. But I'd like to, you know, I like to a little be uh, glass half full. I do think we are in a golden age of TV and we are doing programs about subjects that are incredibly important and we are trying to educate people through TV. So I, it's, it's a great time to, to be a TV actor. 
Absolutely. Well, it's, uh, just picking up on that then, I'm, uh, it's interesting to kind of have that conversation about the kind of more reality side of TV and um, I don't know, I, dare I say it, a slightly more shallow side to TV because uh, there is, un- like, well, fortunately or unfortunately, however way you look at it, the, you know, the youth are attracted to, um, you know, that easy access to fame. And I often hear actually people uh, in schools, because I've been working in a school occasionally um, mm. throughout the pandemic, and I hear, I, you know, we ask people, you know, what do you want to be when you're older? And instead of choosing a job or, you know, literally being an actor or being a firefighter, being whatever, they go, I want to be famous. And I go, well, how do you achieve such a, uh, you know, such a thing? And you, know, you just go on one of these shows and it's just like... <laughs> it's such a shame, isn't it? I know, I think... I mean, it, it wasn't even on in the equation when I was that age. You know, you would never say, I want to be famous. You'd go, I'd say, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a fireman. Or, you know, I want to do... But being famous has suddenly become... And it's not fame. I mean, it's a different sort of fame, isn't it? It's an instant recognition. And I think we surround ourselves with um, instant recognition. You know, it, how many likes do you get on Instagram? Who mm. follows you on Twitter? It's all about instant gratification. And really, that, that's an incredibly unhealthy way to judge your own self-worth, I think, by waiting for somebody else to like you and say that you're good enough. And it's something that I think we really, really need to focus on where, you know, within the mental health of young people because, you know, kids are getting phones earlier now and they are taking up Instagram accounts and stuff like that. And you can't help it, I do. I know it's ridiculous and fake, but I still go, oh, I wonder how many people, oh my God, I've got 4,000 likes. Oh, you know, yeah. or Colin uh, Norton's just like something else. Some, you know, it's like, oh, put it down. You know, who, this is really, really bad. You know, you're putting your self-worth right out there for everybody else to judge. And, and the last person you're going to is yourself for it. And. And this is the same with this whole kind of fame epidemic, I think, that's going on with young people. It's it's not about, they don't even really know what famous means, you know. I think they think what famous means is you just get your picture taken, people talk about you a lot and you get loads of followers. You know, what fame is, is actually, as as, as has become very apparent, not really that nice, you know, you, because people are people are very ready to put you up on a pedestal but then they're really ready to whip you back down again and that's when you get people killing themselves people falling into huge depressions because what they thought was fame is is it's nothing you know it's just nothing it's candy floss it's 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 so transient um so i it, you know it'd be great if we could get away from that get away from kids being that narcissistic, really, and and constantly looking at themselves, what do they look like? It's all it's it's too much here and not enough inside, and it, it's a really dangerous thing, I think. Well, the ver- the very issue as well is that in society as well, at the forefront of society is you know everyone carries around one of these in their pockets. Uh, everyone, as you say, has got a TV in their room, and the world has become increasingly. Um, you know, just run on technology, you know, mm. you know, I could probably get away for the rest of my life almost doing all my podcasts via Zoom and, and that's that. Never have and to leave the house. But what, <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I would like to. What, um, yeah. what, what can we do then, in your opinion then, to kind of iron out those, those issues that we've kind of outlined there? Because I know that that's a, that's a million dollar question probably, but how can we kind of encourage, you know, because social media is designed to be addictive. How can yeah. we encourage that to not be at the forefront of children's minds? It's very difficult. Um, you know, a lot of people, I hear a lot of arguments about this. A lot of people going, well, we just need to ban it. You know, we need to, you can't. Unfortunately, t- you know, technology is here to stay. And I think we need to embrace it. I really do. I think the problem is that we've been given far too much without having the education to use it properly so basically a huge door has been opened very very quickly and we've all run through it and gone i don't know where to go um we need to sort of gradually just just close it a little bit and put more boundaries in place give children more education on how to use social media and technology they need more education on their own sort of how to gain your own self-worth what is fake what isn't fake when you look at a picture of a girl in a bikini and they look like a Barbie that has been airbrushed. You know, that is not a real person. Don't, don't try and look like, you know, it's, it's all of these things that we just haven't put any of these boundaries in place. We've given everything, which is great. Technology is fantastic. You know, 
it's a brilliant thing if it can be used properly. It's just that we haven't, we gave too much without education and we need to, I think, just put those boundaries and that sort of education for younger people and adults alike, just put people when they pick that up, what they're getting into, you know, that's what I think. I, God knows how you do that, but <laughs> that's what I think. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I, let, let's, let's lock away technology for, for a while then. And let's just, let's have a chat about uh, growing up then. Cause you were born in, in Somerset and I'm not a million miles away. I'm currently in, in Lyme Regis now. You're not in Somerset anymore at the moment, but what was that experience growing up down here then like? It was um, it was great. I mean, it was fun. It was a very quite sheltered, you know, down in the southwest in that time. It was a very, it was the southwest of England. You know, <laughs> nobody really went there, um, and there wasn't much going on. But I really, really liked it. I came from a very um, artistic family. Um, so my brother is a musician. He he's a music producer. My sister would train to be a singer. She's now a music teacher. Um, and my, my mum and dad were very musical, very theatrical. So there was always a lot going on at home and, you know, it was always very musical, a lot of fun, very happy family. Um, Yeovil in itself was, (laughs) it was a funny place to grow up really. I mean, it's a funny town, Yeovil, and not a lot of people go, oh yeah, I love Yeovil, but, but I've got huge fond memories of it, you know, because it's where I grew up and, and you know it was a lot of fun I had a lot of fun there my A-level time I remember doing my A-levels at Yeovil College and that was probably two of the best years of my life were spent there because I think it was there that I realized that I wanted to become an actor I suddenly realized what education was because I education for me before was always very confusing I was a bit like my brother I just didn't I remember going to school and going I don't, this is just isn't for me. You know, I just don't get it. I just don't know what I'm doing here. And it wasn't until I did my A-levels where there was a sort of student teacher respect thing, you know, where you didn't have to call them Mr. and Mrs. You didn't have to ask to go to the toilet. It, all of that I found very confusing. I don't know why it just wasn't for me particularly. And now I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at schools for my daughter now for example, and uh, one of the ones that we're going to send it to, it's, I mean, it's the kind of school that I would have loved. You know, it's a very progressive school. You turn up, they really hone in on what you're really good at and you work on that. If you're not good at maths, you don't have to do, you do know what I mean? It's, it's a progressive school. And I think education really is probably going to go in that direction because when I think of the way we educate our children now, it's quite archaic, you know, it's quite... <laughs> It's been the same way for years and years and years. And, um, and really, you know, what we need to do with, with children now is, is make them be able to work in a group, communicate with people, you know, be, be leaders. Be, it, 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 it's not about, you know, learning facts anymore. So for me, school life, I don't really remember much about it. I just remember being not massively interested in it at all. But, but when I got to college, I was like, oh oh, yes, this is brilliant. You know, I love it. So my memories of, of growing up really, really started when I was about 17. <laughs> before, I can't really remember much before that. <laughs> apart, from, apart from doing all the productions that I did. I was always in productions. My mum and dad always put me in, the, you know, the Oval Amateur Operatic Society or the Oval Youth Theatre. So I just lived for that. I don't really remember anything about school and I didn't get any qualifications, really, to speak of. I mean... Uh, I, yeah. there's so much to go on there Sarah good <laughs> lord I love it we one thing that I would say definitely is that you know having spoken to my parents about their education as well it was just such a set structure and there wasn't room for any kind of you know alternative difference between individuals or individuality and yeah. that's something I mean I was lucky enough when I was at school that I think I was very much at the start of you're allowed to kind of express yourself in the avenues that you want to go and, you know, follow your either passions or indeed strengths. And that was something that my school was very good at. And it is something that needs to be increasingly, you know, you know, come to light because now I remember, I think I heard something like there's a certain percentage of jobs that the the children in schools now that don't even exist yet. You know, jobs are going to be created um, quite literally because of advancements in technology. And, you know, all these children need to, explore what they're good at ultimately you know i'm no no mathematician i'm no scientist but i was i was half decent at drama let me do that 
the yard thing. Well, there you go. Do you know what I mean? It's and I look, I sort of go, well, let's have a look at all these people that I really respect who have done really well. And let's have a look back at, at what their education was like. And a lot of them didn't come out with any qualifications at all. Now, I'm not saying, children, if you're out there listening, that you shouldn't work because you have to. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you know, d- developing these little robot children that go off and learn all these hundreds and hundreds of facts and then sort of come out and go, I can't get a job. And it's like, well, you can't get a job because you can't talk to people. You know, you've got to be able to sit in a room and own the room, you know, and make people feel comfortable, make people feel confident about you, be able to be humble, but ambitious. Do you know what I mean? Be able to, to, to talk and know when to be quiet. You've got to learn how to listen. All of these things, none of these things are taught at school. It was like when I went to drama school, I, I learned loads about Shakespeare and how to use my voice, but I didn't know how to do an audition. <laughs> and it was like, well, I know how to speak. But I, you know, but I have no idea how to do, how to do an audition. It was like, well, why aren't why aren't you preparing us? You know, prepare us for life. Not, you know, obviously we need all the underlying stuff. Of course, we need a little bit of mass. We need this. We need that. Blah 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 blah. But prepare us for life. Life is changing rapidly, and we are not changing at the same speed. I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's one thing that I, I feel like is one of my strengths. I speak to some people about kind of job interviews and things like that, and they go, oh, my God, that is terrifying. Yeah. I, I hate sitting in front of people and the pressures. And I actually get annoyed if I don't get to have a job interview because I like to just talk to the people. And it's, it's, yeah. I don't find it that nerve-wracking for a job interview. Audition process is completely different, in my opinion. But yeah, yeah. I, quite, I quite enjoy but, it. But you know what? It shouldn't be nerve-wracking. And this is the thing, this is the thing about regular schools that kind of grinds my gears a bit we are we are put we're sort of put into this corner especially with public schools you know that your adults Mm. know know better they just know better so anyone in a suit with gray hair and a posh voice you listen to you know don't question them this is why we've got you know this is why the government is the government (laughs) don't get me started on that but do you know what i mean <laughs> but, you know, it's just a bunch of Eaton boys because they're really posh and, and they, 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 you know, they own this huge amount of confidence that some say somebody like me who went to Preston Comprehensive School in Yeovil wouldn't have. So I would never even think that I would be able to, to make those sort of decisions, whereas they come equipped with with that confidence. Now, that doesn't mean to say they're knowledgeable or that they should be in that job, but they're so confident that they can do it. And that's why I think our teaching methods are under par, because we're not giving children like me, who was just an average student who went to a comprehensive school, I came out with no confidence at all. And when I did meet people, when I started acting, who had come out of RADA, for example, who had turned posh, I would, I would literally sometimes go into an audition and just walk out and go, I'm not going to go up for that because they're going to get it. You know, I don't want to make a fool of myself. I don't speak like that. I'm not educated like that. They, you know, they already know the casting director that I'm not going to do it. And that's what I don't want for my daughter. Do you know what I mean? I don't want for children. I want, I want the kid from Yeovil to go into the audition from, you know, the person from Raja and go, I belong here. I don't care. You know, I belong here. And, and we are, our world is changing in that direction, which is great, but it just needs to change faster. Absolutely. And now where, where did, uh, when, when did acting become a kind of a reality as a profession rather than a hobby then for you? Um, I think I, so I moved to London in 1986 and I decided that I would do my sort of uh, uh, my gap year or whatever you want to call it before I, w- I went to drama school so I actually took two years out and I I worked in Thornton's chocolate shop in Covent Garden mm-hmm. I worked as a cleaner at the Barbican I worked uh, for Expertel special events um, I worked uh, for Scribbler you know the the stationery shop I worked at the comedy theater I just did loads and loads of little jobs and then joined lots of little theatre companies around London, you know, and did little bits and pieces. Um, and then when I kind of got bored of that, I thought, right, I'm going to I'm going to go drama school um, and audition for drama school. And I think I auditioned for I four maybe. And the one I liked the most was Aura, and I liked Aura because um, they they took you for the whole day. So you went for the whole day. They didn't ask you to do a speech. I 
kind of got myself really worked up about having to do a Shakespeare and a modern and a song. And I kind mm. of, I remember thinking, uh, this doesn't seem right because I could have been practicing this one Shakespeare speech for years, you know, and it might be the only thing I'm good at just because I've done it over and over again. Whereas with Aura, they took you for the whole day and you had to improvise. So you spent the whole day with different people improvising and maybe improvising a dance, doing some physical theater, doing a comedy. You know, I mean, it was a really hard day, but I remember coming out going, I really, this is what I want to do. And they also had TV studios because it's live and recorded arts. And I was really interested in that as well. So, you know, you did a little bit in front of the camera. So, um, Though it was between that one and Central, and I went to Aura. Both very, very good uh, acting schools, absolutely. But w- one thing that's notable at the start of any actor's career, after, after drama school, of course, you, you know, you've got the knowledge uh, and the, the plethora of knowledge and ability as well. But at the start of any acting career is rejection. And that is something that is very difficult for any individual to learn how to deal with and comes, comes with uh, a tremendous amount of anxiety. And I know that from personal experience. Did you, did you kind of experience that yourself? You, I mean, you spoke about that self-doubt there with those kind of rada types. Um, yeah. how, how did you tackle that? It was difficult. I remember it being, I remember that beginning, that beginning section. I, you know, I don't think about it much, but you know, the first eight years out of drama school, really, I just, you know, the jobs I did weren't brilliant. I, they were sort of, you know, a lot of pub theatre, couple of number one tours. I think I did Buddy the Musical. That's probably the biggest thing I did. But I, yeah, I remember going, I remember being sort of spotted a couple of times by casting directors and and, and then putting me up for big jobs. I think I was put up for the chamomile lawn. I remember that, which was a big deal back in the 90s, I suppose. And I remember turning up for the audition and I remember walking in and I just felt lower than the others. I felt less. And I, and I remember who got it. I should look it up really, but I can't remember. But I remember who got it. And she was a rather girl and she's quite famous I can't remember her name but I remember seeing her and going I don't know what I'm doing here you know she's got a posh voice you know that she's gonna get it I don't know what I'm doing here they're giving me a chance because they can see that I've got potential but I've got so many other gates to get over before I'm even gonna get a recall whereas she's already got over those do you know what I mean now it's very different these days I don't think that snobbery exists as much in in our world in in my day you know it did if you know if, if there were two people up for a job and one went to rada and one went to aura the rada person would get it even if the aura person was better but they were two very different styles of acting you know rada is very traditional aura wasn't so the people that come out of aura are all very and um, you know quite quirky different sort of actors um but yeah i did i felt um I, I, at the beginning of my career, I felt very, very nervous a lot of the time where, where I shouldn't have. You know, I would mess up auditions sometimes because I would be so nervous I could barely speak. You know, that feeling where you can't mm, take your I breath do. and you'd be in the middle of sort of saying a line and then... <laughs> and it's like, God, I can't believe I was like that then. Uh, because now, you know, as you get older, and I want all young actors to know this, as you get older, you get to know those people that are auditioning you, and they're just like you, you know, they're, they're just as nervous as you are, that we're all exactly the same. But when you are that vulnerable, and you're putting everything you are and have on the line, it's terrifying when you're in your 20s, really terrifying. Um, it, didn't, it took a long time for me to get over that. I was well into my 30s before I lost my nerves really so what was that just a matter of then kind of gaining the experience within the audition room or did you kind of actively learn to manage those anxieties um I think it was just practice in the audition room and also you know acting or being an actor sort of like being invited to a party and and a lot of the time when you're not invited, you know, so you spend a lot of time going, why haven't I been invited? Why haven't I? When you start to get invited, and this is quite interesting, actually, you you gain um, a sort of veneer of confidence because you know, it's not real confidence. It's just that you've suddenly been invited to the party. So you kind of go, oh, and, and, and that confidence lasts for, for a little bit. And then you'll find that that goes again. And then you build a proper inner confidence, which means it doesn't matter whether you're invited to the party or not. You know that you're good and you know that you're worthy. 
Um, but you have to go through the sort of veneer of fake confidence first, which happens if somebody gives you a job and tells you you're really good. You know, you instead of searching for it yourself, you believe them. And that's very dangerous. That's going back to all that whole thing about fame that we were talking about. Mm. This business can be very dangerous in that way that it's very easy to start listening to people rather than listening to your gut. When people say, you're brilliant, you're great, you're amazing, yeah, you can do this, that and the other. You, it's very easy to go, yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> Blowing your ego up, yeah. Yeah, and, and become a bit of a dick, you know. <laughs> and, and you've got to sort of really keep an eye on yourself and go, but hang on, what do I feel about myself? Did I really do as best as I could in that job? You know, am I really behaving the way I should be behaving? You've always got to keep an eye on yourself. So real confidence takes quite a long time to come. Fake confidence can come quite quickly if you start working quite quickly, but real confidence, it comes from you. Couldn't agree more, definitely. Now, I was flicking through the IMDb credits of, of yourself uh, to try to see what, see, see what we could have a natter about. And there was an array of credits, Sarah. I'm trying to think of a time when you have been off the TV screen for a long period of time. I mean, your, lo- your credits are so long. It's wonderful to see. Um, and occasionally as well, just talking about it there, you do occasionally do skip the audition process altogether. And uh, one show does come to mind. Do you see this kind of as a, a flattering reward as part of uh, as an actor or for, you know, for all your hard work today? Or is that just purely luck, you know, because uh, quite often this, this industry is just based around that word. <laughs> it, it's both. Um, sometimes if you have been given a job and you know that you were chosen, you were probably the first choice. It's a really lovely feeling. It's, you usually know that because you're, you're, you're chosen or you get the phone call way before the job starts because the process is they'll go out to their number ones, first of all, and then the number ones go, I don't want to do it. Then they go out to the number twos, I don't want to do it. Then usually with me, I'm a number three. So I'll be like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> but if you know, if you get offered like months before it starts, you're like, oh, I think I might have been a number one choice, which is great. Um, but, you, you know, it, it's a funny old business because sometimes, sometimes you are number nine or number 10 and you really feel it, you know. So you, even though it's still an offer, you'll probably get the offer on the Friday and they're like, can you come in for the reader on the Monday? And you're like, right. So obviously I'm, it's, it's, a, gen, it's a definite like, oh God, we're going to have to have parish. Literally you've been through everybody else. It's going to have to be parish. <laughs> and you turn up at the read through and every, and usually, I mean, I, this has happened to me twice. And it's a really horrible. And you kind of turn up and they're all like, hi, Sarah, thank you. I'm so glad you could do it. We were thrilled. It was always you. We always wanted you. We always wanted you, darling. And you know they didn't. And then <laughs> you do the read-through and, and you can see them all kind of going, oh, God, no, she hasn't got it. This isn't what we wanted. And it's that horrible bit in the break in the read-through when everyone has a cup of tea and no one talks to you because you haven't done it right. And then, you know, the producer will probably ring you and go, hey, hi, Sarah, yeah, um, great read-through, brilliant 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 you were brilliant um however we don't think that she is you know uh, scottish uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they basically sort of you know squeeze you into the person that they wanted um and you spend the whole show trying to be somebody else which is really horrible but that's only that happens that's life you know and, and we're actors you you know i'm never going to be i'm always going to be a jobbing actor and if somebody gives me a job, I'm going to do it, you know. And if, I, if I'm number nine on the list of people they want it, then I'm number nine and I shall do my best. Well, a great, a great actor can do their own roles, but a, another great actor also takes notes. Exactly. <laughs> even, if, even if we don't like to have them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is difficult. But of course, consistency is another word that comes to the, to the industry that comes to mind. Uh, and you've played a number of roles alongside David Tennant. Um, (laughs) which is pretty cool first and foremost um but i mean how are you guys on set together do you have deja vu moments do you actually now just joke about Uh, it what's it like well you know what you naturally somebody else asked me this the other day and really the last the last time we were on set together was 2016 Mm. we did um his wife georgia was the producer of a film called you me and him and i had a small part in that and we did a day together then but that's the last time i've actually seen him because I think W, we always put W1A in on the things that we've done together. But of course, he's just the voiceover. 
So I never see David in that. So I think people think that we kind of, you know, we know each other really well. We we don't. We've never really hung out, me and David. It was a purely professional relationship. I think when we did Blackpool together, which was the first job we did together, there was a time when that... It was such a great show to do that group. You you know, as actors, sometimes if you do a great show, you tend to hang out with those people for a bit after and you, you go off again. So we did have a brief time when we hung out together. But yeah, so we did Blackpool was first, wasn't it? Then we did a really lovely show about him. What was it called? He had a brain injury. It was called by Tony Marchant. And it was a really lovely recovery. It was called Recovery. Um, then we did Doctor Who and I was a big red spider. But again, I didn't really see David that much because I was stuck in the Big Red Spider up there (laughs) and he was down there. And once I was in the Big Red Spider with my contacts in and my big teeth, I couldn't get out. So they they were all having a lovely chat and I was stuck in the Big Red Spider. Um, Then it was you, me and him. And then obviously W1A. So we actually haven't properly seen each other since 2016. But yeah, it is nice. I mean, that is quite unusual. But then Jason Watkins, I've worked with him three times now so you do as you get older you know it's the same old faces isn't it they all pitch up and it's like oh hello <laughs> were you number nine as well yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah a couple of number nines <laughs> uh, no i'm sure i'm i'm triple figures when it comes to that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you get into the teens you know that yeah don't, don't go to the read-through <laughs> yeah exactly but of course um you did meet as well your husband on a on a job now I want I want to know about this. I want to talk about this. Was it was it love at first sight at the read through? Was it is it, you know I'm envisaging this magnificent kind of looking across the read through table and just your your eyes kind of glistening over. Paint the picture. Was it love at first sight? Oh, he's gone. He just walked past. I'm just sorry. I was going to ask him. I don't think it was actually. I mean, we had met each other before. We um, there used to be these famous ITV parties that everyone used to go to, and I remember meeting him at an ITV party and thinking that. He was frightfully handsome mm. and probably massively out of my league. Um, and then he turned up at the reader of cutting it. I was like, oh, there's that really good looking guy. But there's something about guys that are very good looking that I immediately just go, you know, <laughs> I won't bother going there because he's just really good looking. Um, but yeah, we, it was, we didn't, it wasn't love at first sight, really. We got to know, it took us quite a long time to get to know each other. And we bonded over, we had the same taste in music. And, um, uh, yeah, we sort of liked that old 70s sort of California-style music. And we started talking about that one day. And went, oh, my God, I love, I love that band. I love that band. So it was quite old-fashioned in the way, that, you know, that kids used to get together when they talked about music or they met at a gig. And, yeah, we, yeah so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, thunderclap. <laughs> yeah. it, it didn't hold production like brittle yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh and, he, and here he comes there he is. should we hear should we hear should we hear a different version of the story how did we fall in love jim was it love at first sight <laughs> it's lovely louis i'm doing a podcast with louis oh right uh, okay uh are we recording are we live? we're live we're live we're live and going <laughs> uh, how did we meet no how did we fall? was it love at first sight god yeah Absolutely. Such a lie. Uh, every good actor. <laughs> no, I, I tell you what, joking apart, I was sent some tapes of Sarah's, of uh, cutting it. it. must have been cutting it because that's where we met. And I'd never seen the show and I was offered a, a role in it. And, I, and uh, so they sent me tapes. This was before, obviously, you could just find it online. And they sent me VHSs. So I... Uh, I, well, We're about old. Mean DVDs. I can't remember. A VHS. I know what that is. <laughs> Maybe not a VHS. That would it really was is. A VHS. Maybe the VHS. Anyway, I just on one rainy Wednesday afternoon, I put it on. And right, let's see what this cutting is all about. And then Sarah's face came up, and I went, "I like her." Oh, oh, oh! I want to give you a hug for that. And Go then, on. And uh, yeah, and then I went. I better take the job. And uh, oh. yeah, and that was that. Some decisions are better than others, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dare we go into those? <laughs> oh, wonderful! But so was so. Then did you get together then? And then did you? Um, you know, because you, you're both as you, as we've talked about working actors. So I imagine you were kind of drawn to all, all parts of the world almost. Yeah, we ma- were. We've been all over the place. We got together after cutting it, and. Um, 
yeah, we've sort of followed each other around. Jim did uh, quite a lot of work in the States and in Canada. So uh, we we lived in Vancouver for a little bit and Ooh. we've been to LA a lot. Um, yeah, we just sort of try and follow each other around. I mean, not so much now that Nell's at school. Obviously, we can't all just pick up sticks. It was those days, I miss those days, actually, because it was really nice when Nell wasn't at school and, you know, one of us got a job somewhere and we'd all just go mm. and have another little life somewhere else, which was fun. But, yeah, it was good. So how long have you called Hampshire home, then? We've lived in Hampshire since 2007. We moved down from London um, to a little village called Lower Weald, which is about 15 minutes up the road from where I am now. Um, and we lived in um, a little cottage called the Old Windmill. It used to be a pub years ago. Um, it was tiny, uh, but lovely, re- you know, a proper beams, open fire, lovely, tiny little cottage. And um, we started to outgrow it a bit as Nell got bigger. And, uh, and we moved here in 2015. So we've been in this house since 2015. And it's great. We've completely redesigned it ourselves, redesigned the garden. It's, we've got enough space. It's in a brilliant. It's got a great one of the best pubs in Hampshire. But it's three oh, which one? It's called the Bush. Okay, Nathan. Oh, it's fab. You've got to go when you come. It's brilliant. Mm, definitely. Uh, now, if it's okay with you, I really I'm conscious of just keeping an eye on the time, but I really want to talk to you about um, the Murray Parish Trust oh, and the yeah. incredible work that you and your husband do and have been doing for a number of years now uh, for such a wonderful cause. Um, But before we do talk about um, the trust, I wanted to talk to you because I've done this with somebody else and I wanted to talk about the word grief, if that was okay. Because in modern society, it's such a taboo word and such a taboo kind of feeling and emotion uh, to tackle grief because not many people know how to understand it and comprehend it because not many people want to talk about it when actually it is something that we all have to experience one way or another. Uh, And... I wanted to talk to you about your immediate coping mechanisms, um, if if that was okay with you, yeah, uh, and absolutely. how and how and how you kind of had learnt to deal with with grief because you you tragically lost your daughter Ella Jane um, to a rare genetic disorder, and I I wanted to to know your experiences of grief if you're happy to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting question that I'm I'm still learning how to deal with it. I, I, I kind of think I've got a um a hold on it and then somebody else I'm at that age now where obviously my parents have died and all of their friends have died, most of them. But you know, people still die every now and again and I still am not coping with it as well as I'd like to. I think the last uh, my uncle Chris died when was it? In lockdown, in May last year. Or was it May? Or oh, I can't remember. Yeah, around that time. And and again, I sort of, I had a massive meltdown again. So I'm still not quite there where I want to be with grief, really. I still find it very difficult. And I am very aware that as a Westerner, you know, I still hold this kind of long-held fear of death which we all do. And, and really, you know, if you go to the Eastern world, you know, you go over to the East, it, it, they, they look at it in a very different way, in a much more sort of grounded way, that it's something that we will, you know, that happens to us all. We're, we're, we're just going on this constant circle. But I'm, I'm still learning how to deal with it. I mean, when Ella Jane died, you know, there's obviously a part of me that blocked a lot of that out because I try and think back at that time and there are only small amounts of that time that I remember vividly because your brain is very clever, isn't it? And it just goes, you can't cope with that. So we'll just put that, put that there and we'll lock it away. Um, I think what I learned from it, God, it's a really difficult one. When Ella Jane died that you know, you, there were many, many emotions. So most of them awful, but some of them were, we was, ele- you know, I was quite elated. There was a huge feeling of love and acceptance and, um, I don't know, a, a, a powerful feeling. I can't really explain it, but to sort of a knowledge that something incredible had happened. And even though it's dead and you can't, it's not palpable anymore, it's still around, it's still there. And that was, um, I think that's something that I've really kept, you know, even though the physical might be gone, the, the lessons and, and the soul and the spirit and everything around it is still there. You choose whether that's still there or not. And I very much choose that it is still there. 
And that gives me great comfort. And I think it gives Jim great comfort. And, and running the charity, obviously, is another little, you know, jigsaw piece in, in that keeping Ella Jane a little bit. Do you know what I mean? It keeps her memory alive. But even if we didn't have that, there would still be that feeling of um, huge gratitude for knowing her. And I think that's how I deal with grief. I try and turn it into gratitude, turn it into what, you know, what a wonderful gift that life was and I'm very pleased to have it and very grateful to have had it for as long as I had that's the way I would try and go with it I'm but as I say I'm still learning I'm still melt every time someone dies I still have a huge meltdown you know and but now I recognize that I have a meltdown I know it's coming do you know what I mean and I can try and it's, it's a it's a work in progress but it's also one of those things that you have to acknowledge in society. It's okay to have a meltdown. That's just allowed because it's, okay. it's, it's yeah. become increasingly normal now to allow that to happen. I, you know, I speak to people a few years ago when, you know, you couldn't talk about it, about anything, yeah. really. Yeah. You have to bottle these things yeah. up. Well, anything emotional was sort of mm. like, you really should try and keep that under your hat, you know. And it's like, well... Do you know what? You know, I I think it's probably better to to let it out and and look at it, you know, and then put it away completely than just sort of put a lid on it and go <laughs> because eventually it will come out, you know, and it will come out in a really really bad way if you if you don't give it the space and the air that it that it deserves, you know. Um, so yeah, grief is an on, it's an ongoing lesson for me, but I definitely learned a lot through losing Ella Jane. Um, and and I'd like to say that a, a lot of it is very good. You know, a lot of it has been very helpful. And you know, we were talking earlier about um, about nerves and about auditions and things like that. The, the minute she died, the rest of my nervousness and my insecurity went really. And I think that was probably down to, you know, when you sort of go, God, I don't think I'm never going to be tested like this again. Nothing, it, nothing this bad will ever happen again. Is it then, I suppose, perspective? It's huge perspective, yeah. It's, that's exactly what it is. And when you work, walk into an audition now, you go, really? You know, come on. There's it, far I'm, bigger things than the acting yeah. world and the industry that we live in. Exactly. And that's another great, great sort of um, leveller is running the charity, especially as an actor, because they're two opposite ends of the scale. You know, you've got one lovely candy foss, bubblegummy kind of career going on there, which everything's lovely and it's all, everyone you work with is lovely and da, 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 da. And then you've got the reality of what's going on when people are sick and they're dying and their children are dying. And it's a great leveller for Jim and I, you know, to be able to, to to have both of those things going on at the same time yeah i mean you have now started this incredible legacy um in 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 memory i wanted to to ask you what would what's your kind of proudest moment of that so far of that journey so far then oh gosh i suppose because i imagine there's loads yeah there are loads um oh there's there's been loads i mean the biggest i let's go with the biggest thing that we've done not that that was the proudest maybe but the biggest thing we did was we managed to, uh, with another charity, raise uh, five million pounds uh, to build and open an enormous um, ED, an enormous sort of um, children's emergency department down in Southampton, which covers the whole of the south of England. And that was an enormous step for us as a charity. We, we're just a tiny kitchen table charity. And to be able to get the support of the government you know, to get these huge donors coming in, giving us big wads of money to, to suddenly say we are being taken seriously. That was a very proud moment for us because we suddenly went, yeah, we're making a difference. But then on the other end of the scale, you know, just doing things like the Three Peaks Challenge <laughs> where Jim and I, you know, went up these in 24 hours, did three mountains in 24 hours. That, you know, I remember coming down the, at Snowden at the end of that, just going, I feel so proud of myself for doing that because it was incredibly difficult. But every step of the way, you know, we thought about Ella Jane and it kept us going. So the different ends of the scale, really, the, the, the completing the great big appeals is fantastic because it's fantastic. And he, but, you know, equally doing the tiny little things that you, you put your heart and soul into it are equally as, as rewarding. I, I completely agree. I, I love the, the website and, and everything. It looks so good. So I wouldn't, you wouldn't even think that it's some sort of small tabletop charity. I can assure you. Of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think it's wonderful what you're doing. What, what's, what's next for you as a charity then? 
Well, we are doing our next appeal is um, to raise money for an eye MRI scanner, which is an intraoperative MRI scanner, which is basically an MRI. You know what those an MRI scanner is within a hospital suite, so uh, an operating suite. So when a child with a brain tumor or brain cancer or something wrong with their spine is being operated on, at the moment they have to keep going out and having different MRI scans because your spine and your brain move when you're moved around, basically. If you have the MRI within the operating suite, then you can just you can just keep putting the patient in and out. So you don't have to kind of wake them up and give them another MRI. So basically, these children are having multiple operations to get rid of one tumor because with the MRI, once the, the surgeon looks at it and then looks at the brain, they might not match up do you see what i mean mm. so the, the the surgeon doesn't want to take a risk and go well i'll just go in anyway because it's the it's the difference between life or death or total paralysis and total movement so they will sew the person back up they'll go into recovery for two days they'll have another mri then they'll go back into the operating suite and this goes round and round and round this imri scanner means that if the surgeon suddenly goes hang on a minute that picture doesn't relate to what i'm looking at now they can just put them in the scanner there and then and continue the operation and that's done tumors out in one go bringo it's incredible yeah, it's, it's a real game changer for kids with, with brain tumours, brain cancer or anything wrong with their spine because they have been going through years and years of, of MRIs and CT scans, which means you're full of radiation constantly, constant operations. It's horrible. It's just horrible. It doesn't make sense economically, doesn't make sense in any way at all. So this will be a game changer. Well, I, I wish you and the charity the, my, the best of luck. It sounds Thank like, and I'll, I'll do anything that I can do as well to, oh, to help, definitely. Thank um, you. So for you then, Sarah, what's next for you? What's your, what's your goals um, for, for acting? And indeed, obviously, get, 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 your, get your lovely daughter through school, I suppose. is probably Yeah, I mean, Nell starts a new school next year. Um, exciting. Which is very exciting. Uh, so she'll be off to big school. Uh, I've got a few things. I mean, I'm 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 doing a Netflix series at the moment. I started that last week, so that will take me on to. Is that Medici still? No, this is um, new. Or do I dare I ask? Am I allowed to? Know? Yeah, you're allowed to okay. ask. It's um, it's called Stay Close. It's by a guy called Harlan Coben, who is an American writer, and he. There have been two other projects that he wrote that we've had already called The Stranger. That was on last mm-hmm. year or the year before. And then Safe, which was on about four years ago. So this is the next one in his um, in his sort of repertoire. So I'm doing that. Got another episode, uh, series of a thing called The Cockfields, which was Joe Wilkinson, uh, the mm. comedian. Uh, that will be in the summer. Um, I've got a project that I've been working on for yonks now with Hugh Bonneville, which is finally sort of getting, gaining speed. Those kind of projects that you come up with people, they take such a long time to get off the ground, but they're by far the most rewarding. There's a series of books that um, I've just commissioned that I hope to uh, make into a series at some point. So there's all lots and lots and lots of things going on. It's all good. Lots of fingers in many, many pies. Very yeah, exciting. Yeah. Got to be busy. And that sounds exciting. Uh, was that was the project with Hugh something that you've done together or was it you being a first? Uh, it, it's, it's no, it, this is something that we, ca- it's an idea we came up with ages ago when we were doing W1A. Mm. Uh, that's how long it takes to get a project off the ground. And, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's been made, you know, it's been put together in many forms over the last seven, four years, three or four years. And we're now sort of getting to the place where we need to be. Um, so hopefully, touch wood, this will be the year where we get a green light. Mm. <laughs> uh, this, is a, this is a question that I ask uh, every one of my guests at the end as, as we kind of wind down. What does the word headstrong mean to you? Headstrong. Ooh. Gosh. Headstrong. Gosh, that's really difficult. What's the word headstrong? Um, I think, I expect, do a lot of people sort of say confident and outgoing and things like that? Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I have, I've had a vast array of, of yeah, responses to that question. I would say it's not that. I would say headstrong is somebody who's very happy in themselves and very at peace with themselves. Uh, you know, when I meet somebody and they're calm, 
and they are the bigger person a lot of the time or you know they they listen I always think they're headstrong that's head that's headstrong for me a real somebody who can listen and read a room and you know yeah yeah a listener I like that. That's lovely. Very, very di- di- different approach to to uh, my usual responses. That's very nice. <laughs> Sarah, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me. It's and been- uh, oh, thank you so much. Well, I wish you all the very best, and uh, we will hope to see you very soon on some screens. Yeah. See you soon. And that's it for this episode of Headstrong. Thank you so very much to Sarah for joining me on this episode. And I wish her all the very best for everything that's coming up in 2021. And all the best to the charity and her family. I also thank you, the listener, for clicking on this episode and having a listen to this point. Impressive that you've made it to the conclusion of the podcast. I really appreciate every single download. So if you have enjoyed it, can you go leave a subscription if you have the time? Or indeed leave a review for the podcast. That would be wonderful. And go share it with your family and friends. Join me next week on another episode of Headstrong with another wonderful guest. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.